This podcast is brought to you by the Common Mission Project. Hello and welcome to the Common Mission Podcast. Uh, today we have a special episode. So joining me as always, Rodrigo. Thank you for being here, Rodrigo. And we're bringing to you the executive director from the Common Mission Project, my good friend, my boss, Alex Gallo. <laughs> welcome, Alex. Welcome, Rodrigo. Hey, thanks for having me. Hi, Absolutely. Uh, thank you. Yeah, so I, I've been trying to get Alex on an episode since we, you know, he came up with the idea for the podcast. I take zero credit for this uh, when we when I started with the commission team, and it's been exciting because we've been able to talk to a lot of different individuals. But I've been we've been trying to get Alex on for a, a good while now. So what we're going to be doing uh, on this episode is the idea of the Red Queen problem. And Alex, I, I know there's you've done a tremendous amount of work in what this idea is and, and how we're using it in defense innovation and innovation more broadly, but. Before we dive into to the Red Queen problem, which is going to kind of be our our framework for the conversation, I just want to yeah. get a little bit of a, a background on you, Alex. And I know you you've you've been in the space for for quite a while, and you've done a lot of different things. So just get an idea of who you are. Oh, I, thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, my story, and I, I do want to go all the way back in this sense to um, my graduation from the United States Military Academy at West Point. And the reason why is because it really uh, the story I'm about to tell you is very formative and, and it informs all the choices I've made from a career perspective all the way up through today. Okay. Um, so um, I graduated from the United States Military Academy on June 2nd, 2001. You know, we're up at outside the parade field, out, at, at the outside the football stadium, I should say. Mm-hmm. We're in our dress uniforms, which are wool. And <laughs> yeah, I remember that from the old guard. Yeah. And it was absolutely pouring down. Um, on this morning of 2nd of June. And so, of course, to like the military is good at um, the graduation. I'm, I'm not exactly sure of the time, but the graduation was like at 10 and we're there at like 5 a.m., right? Right, so, right. Not too yeah. early, right. You understand that, Jim. And <laughs> where I'm going with this is, um, of course, we it rained all the way through. We, we graduated on that day, um, but um, and we went on to our officer basic courses at the time. And I was at Fort Benning, Georgia, an infantry officer officer basic course uh, on September 11th, 2001. And of course, 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. And um, the reason why I, I tell the story about West Point in the lead up is the lore at West Point is if it rains on your graduation day, that means your class is going to war. And so I don't think that's suspicious. But nonetheless, you know, sure enough, or what have you, three and a half months later, 9-11 happened. And certainly myself, my class, the rest of the military, and to some extent, the country uh, was at war. And so, you know, that experience, and particularly later on, that experience in combat uh, that I had in Iraq in 2004, led me on the journey that I'm on today. And, And, you know, I saw in Iraq the consequential outcomes um, of U.S. national security and policy, right? Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, I had, um, you know, soldiers who were killed and wounded in combat. And, um, you know, through that experience, I decided that as the, on the implementation of national security policy and strategy, I want to be part of helping shape national security policy and strategy with that consequential experience in mind. So that took me on a trajectory to, I came off of active duty in 2006 I went to the Harvard Kennedy School to study the problem set closer, and particularly I looked at um, counterterrorism and uh, Al Qaeda's communication strategy. And then I had the opportunity to go on to West Point, actually as a civilian professor, and teach there, but also serve in the Combating Terrorism Center. Mm. And and that was, you know, so I studied the problem set at Harvard. I um, 
studied it further, but also synthesized some of the key issues at the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point. And I was also part of the McChrystal assessment with many, many, many other people in 2009. And then I I went to the Hill, uh, where I was served on the House Armed Services Committee um, as a professional staff member with the Middle East policy portfolio. also ended up having the Asia Pacific policy portfolio. And that was where I was taking my on-the-ground tactical experience of the outcomes of national security policy strategy, my study of it academically and synthesis of it research-wise into the policymaking process. Right. And and then, you know, through that experience in the policymaking process, what I recognize is I don't, uh, that we did not engage enough of our country and society in these critical public problems. And all along the way, I, you know, that's how I ran in. I ran into Pete Newell, I should say, or I was connected to him actually is the uh, true story through Joe Felter. And, um, and I recognized the opportunity to try to connect more of our country and society to national service through Hacking for Defense. Yeah which we've now expanded. And so, um, and that's what I'm doing today as the executive director of CMP. So there's, that's, that's actually a, a good segue to the conversation we have, we want to have today, right? So, so the national security environment has been changing dramatically yeah. and uh, we could argue that maybe our doctrine hasn't and hasn't followed some of those changes. This is not, not something new. It's something that we've seen in the past. We, we, we fight the last war uh, and we in part fight the last war because we don't adapt the doctrine to the new rules, tactics or tools and weapon systems that are available to us for the new one. Yeah. Um, you discuss as part of that framework the idea of the Red Queen problem, which is, uh, I think, a beautiful metaphor. And I would like us to kind of present to us where that came to form some of the contributions that you've had in this field. And we probably could explore their one case study that we're seeing right now in the war in Ukraine mm-hmm. and reflect back into the United States, as you said, to try to uh, uh, think of how we could improve our own our own capacities to deal with this so-called Red Queen problem. So what is it? Yeah, um, the Red Queen problem, the Red Queen phenomenon is really something that was um, coined by uh, Steve Blank. Um, he's referring to through the looking glass um, uh, from the Alice in Wonderland series where I'm paraphrasing here, of course, um, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it's essentially where Alice says, you know, my world or land, when you run somewhere, you get somewhere. And the Red Queen says, in our world, it takes all the running just to keep up or stay in the same place, excuse me, stay in the same place. And yeah, I mean, in many ways, um, the Red Queen problem was what we were experiencing in Iraq in 2004 when I was there. It took all the running we could, all the effort we could, just to keep up with the enemy. And um, we were not able to overcome and circumvent the Red Queen problem because we were not operating with a agile entrepreneurial mindset at that time. And so Steve Blank and and then you know Pete Newell and Joe Felter, they apply, they recognize the Red Queen phenomena and they through their own experiences, um, you know, Pete was a battalion commander in combat the same time I was in Iraq in the same location, similar location, different brigades. But, you know, Joe Felter with his experience in combat in Afghanistan and I believe Iraq as well, you know, they they have shared experiences. All of us can recognize this experience. And, and the real, like, innovative thought uh, among many um, that Steve Pete and Joe Felter came up with as a developed hacking for defense was not only about the Red Queen idea, but I would say equally important, they recognize that military 
personnel in combat in particular have to opt, operate as entrepreneurs because they're in an uncertain environment. Money is not being lost, but potentially lives, the mission, and these kind of things. And they recognize that mission-oriented organizations needed more entrepreneurial thinking. And Steve Blank had you know, developed this method known as Lean Launchpad, and Pete and Steve Blank, and then eventually Joe Felter as well, they, they said, could we apply Steve's innovation entrepreneurship method, Lean Startup, Lean Launchpad, to public problems, to military problems? And the answer is yes, of course, because the military has to think more like entrepreneurs. And to your point, Rodrigo, um, you know, I think we're, you know, we're seeing that in spades in the Ukraine problem set as well. We're seeing that need to be agile, innovative, entrepreneur, all that language. And we can unpack that. Well, what do we mean by those terms? But, you know, we see that ever present. And, you know, I, you know, I think just to tee up that and then I'll, I'll, you know, I'll pause, but like just to tee up that thought is um, on one hand, so my provocative thought for this, our conversation is on one hand, um, uh, you know, we're recognizing that need. I think the central question is um, how representative is the Ukraine war to future warfare? Now, certainly folks believe the answer is yes, it is actually very representative. But I think also it could be <clears throat> a false positive. Some people have noted, I've seen this um, in other forums where they've talked about the amount of um, conventional uh, you know, munitions, conventional uh, platforms that are engaged in the conflict. Yet again, that could be a false positive because that's what they the Russians have, and that's what they're throwing into the fight at this point. Right. So I think there's like an open question on one hand is how representative is the Ukraine war? I, I tend to lean towards it does to some extent represent the future of warfare. Um, and then I always reflect on the Bob Gates quote, which is we've been 100% wrong 100% of the time in <laughs> predicting uh, the nature of future war. And, and, and that's, again, yet again, reason why we need to have an entrepreneurial agile mindset. Sorry. And for listeners who might not have been following what we refer to as the differences that we see in the war in Ukraine uh, related to this Red Queen problem, uh, I would like to say that uh, what we're talking about here is the use of uh, new technologies like off-the-shelf drones, the kind of that you and I can go and buy in Best Buy, combined with, with conventional weaponry uh, right. that is accessible both for the, for the Russian side because of their uh, important uh, military industry, industrial complex, and then for the Ukrainian, mostly through the tran technology transfer that they've been receiving through the Polish uh, border from NATO-allied countries. Right. So what right. we have is this weird place where we're seeing at the same time a, a return to World War II like conflict of territorial acquisition that we thought we would be leaving behind. But right. with the tools and, 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 and techniques of the 21st century, including those use of dual use technology, of the shelf technology. And those the Red Queen problem here would be that we are moving as fast as we can just to stay in place. And if you just do that, it wouldn't be enough, right? That you, you need to do more, do more than just run in place with what you used to do in order to be able to advance in this new, in this new scenario. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, my just viewpoint on that is I think the nature of the Red Queen problem, not at all, I, you know, um, in, in this Ukraine scenario is that um, we're myopically actually focused on the technology integration. 
Right. Yeah. So that's an interesting point, isn't it? Yeah. Because I think like you would actually, you know, to exclusively focus on that. And this is certainly what we, you know, tout in our hacking for defense kind of mindset and methodology to exclusively focus on that. In many ways, you might be reinforcing Red Queen problem just with different tools. Mm -hmm. It's the same type of solutions that I received in Kuwait before we went into Iraq. And they were all in search of problems because all the stuff, the equipment we received in Kuwait, they stayed in our containers the entire year because they were all solutions, search of problems. I do wonder sometimes um, whether or not the exclusive focus on technology into the Ukraine fight might be reinforcing the same phenomena. So here's where I'm pivoting. And to your point, Rodrigo, is that it's actually, I, I think about it in ter- two ways. One is the operational design. So it's how do we use both conventional platforms and technology to, in a, in a new designed way, operational design way, to be more effective on the battlefield and then circumvent or overcome the Red Queen phenomena. And the second way I think about it is in terms of human capital, you know, people, soldiers. And I think what's, what's interesting, and we were talking about this a little bit before, or maybe I was talking with a different group about this, um, you know, um, this, the knowledge about warfare, the experience of warfare, as someone who's experienced it to some extent, um, that, is, that cannot be replaced. And, um, and to the extent to which that's going to be reposited institutionally within the Ukrainian military, and then certainly, hopefully, to some extent, the United States military, and the, um, that's, in, that's su- super valuable. There's a lot of learning that's occurring right. about the experience of warfare. So operational design and the human side, I think, are the ways that we circumvent the Red Queen problem. And and it's interesting, Jim. Uh, in our in in our last conversation with uh, uh, Alex Oswald, he was mentioning how the big success of entrepreneurs are those who can do the experimental, the experimental part of build, measure, learn of lean, but at the same time can then carry that one into institutional design, right? Into building business models and 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 companies who can learn from that and th- those two modes right the, the the mode of yes do build measure learn but then go and design something based on that don't get lost on just capturing data actually that data that you capture has to translate into the way you build your 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 bureaucracy your organization that by mold dynamic he says and I think I agree is what is the staple sign of, of, of high performing CEOs or founders that are able to do those two things together. So it's very, very reflective what you're saying here, Alex, about oh. uh, getting the learning and then bringing it uh, to the to the uh, organization uh, that you are that you are commanding. Right. Yeah. So, you know, Alex, I bring like there was, you know, you're talking about historical context and I had something interesting. So when I was at Santurce, we got to have a tour of the old college with the the curator. And they were mentioning and talk about my lack of historical understanding is how that British officers used to buy their way into being officers oh. and that the so every rank. So you have to have somebody who is fairly wealthy that would actually put them through to get to certain right. ranks. So you had to you know, buy everything. But the idea was that somebody would buy like there was a war every 10 years. So the British military thought, well, the officers will have a chance to do a right seat ride for five to 10 years before they're actually going to be going into combat. But what ended up happening is that timeline continued to get more and more and more compressed over, over the years. So now you're throwing out officers into a warfare situation that have no business being leading troops, let alone going into, into war. And I think that's what's interesting. Like if you look at it from this, from like the lessons learned that you see over time is 
these are lessons that we've seen historically. I mean, we can take any example. What is it going into uh, Russia in the wintertime, right, is an example. Like people continue to make the same mistakes over and over again. And I think this is I look at the Red Queen problem being similar to that is that you keep running. But if you're just reframing it, like you mentioned, this is all a technology problem. Well, you're kind of reinforcing to your point. I agree with you, you know, intrinsically that when you only look at it from the one perspective, you're you're just keeping on that same treadmill. Yeah. And we had a conversation with Katie Sindak on our CMP Board of Advisors. I know you know her well, uh, talking about Eastern European policy innovation as it relates to if we look at Ukraine as being kind of like this example of what we're learning from all of this. And I do. The other point you mentioned is that it's not enough for us to actively participate in these these conflicts. It's something else entirely like what are we learning from it? and What are we doing yeah. from it? And you told me something you mentioned this just now, Alex, but something that was interesting about your experience in combat was you know, like you said, it's a problem in search of a solution. So that's a big thing. So there's a lot of funds being wasted, time being wasted, equipment that's not being used. But it's also another matter of it's not solving the right problems. And I think this is something I've pulled away from you in this H4 experience over the years is that when we already think we know what the problem and the solution is, we're just continuing down the same path of effectively staying still. And so before we get into like different topics there, real quick mentioning about um, this risk of being technology focused. Now, I know you've spent time on the Hill with policy. You still continue working with policy. Yeah. And we're, this is something that we're seeing as a trend and talking with, with people about we can't continue to ignore the importance of good policy as it relates to our decisions with technology or personnel and resources. And why do you think that uh, innovation policy, specifically within the Department of Defense, has been ignored? And what are you seeing that's maybe saying that we're going maybe making good decisions or we're making strides and understanding that we haven't done a good enough job there <laughs> historically? So um, my, let me just start with um, the, the biggest, um, if you were to sit, put yourself inside of, and I'm not suggesting I'm you know, talking to them every day, but just kind of understanding the mindset of like a Secretary Austin or Deputy Secretary Kathleen Hicks or Undersecretary for Policy, who's now an acting, but, you know, any of those type of individuals, um, what they're most, they're, um, they're concerned that we were entering the window for conflict, potential conflict with China over the issue of Taiwan. Right. And, and, and they're, they are trying to go back to the Red Queen idea. They're trying to move as fast as they can um, to um, have the right conventional forces, the right munition um, mix and quantity, of course, the right innovative technology that they can plug in, and they're just trying to ingest it as fast as they can. This is also within the... So on one hand, what's pressurizing their context is the potentiality of conflict. And all they want to do is provide the president with options. Seems now, fair. On the other side of the equation, the budget. You know, we are in a inflationary, highly high inflationary environment. There's also uh, political concerns, and we can go into detail, but just generally political concerns, like with the recent budget, uh, <clears throat> the um, increase of the uh, d- the debt ceiling. ceiling part of that agreement yeah. included coming back to FY22 levels, which is now a, a little bit of a debate point, um, and so. What they're recon- what the DoD is recognizing is that their buying power is decreasing because of inflation. Their top line number might also decrease over time. Yet we're entering a period of potential conflict, or at least the need to deter, hopefully, that conflict. But certainly, having having to decisively win should the president decide to make that decision. Um, 
that's what's driving their behavior. And so what they're trying to do is ingest as much technology as they can. And I do think there is a deliberate effort to thinking about how do we, through new operational designs at the joint staff level and the combatant command level, how do we integrate this with our conventional platforms? The other thing that's interesting, and and so that's that's what's going on. And and um, my point about the other interesting thing that's going on is one of the lessons of Ukraine was really fascinating. And I saw this at the Reagan National Defense Forum when I was there last December. Um, and you had the undersecretary for ANS, Bill LaPlante, speaking, and others, of course. But um, he was, you know, he and others were talking about uh, the lessons of Ukraine is not that we in- need to integrate more technology, although they agreed. I mean, this is a provocative thought. The lesson sure. of Ukraine is we don't have enough munitions. Yeah, mm. that's a really good point, isn't it? Sustain a long term fight. And you know what? Our enemies know that, our adversaries know that. And so the assumptions on a Russia China side is that the United States doesn't may not have the little literal capacity to sustain a long-term fight. So what you need to do is extend the fight as long as possible. And they make an assumption that the American public does not have the stomach for a long-term fight. And so their thought process is you want to escalate very quickly, escalate the situation very quickly. The United States might not be able to meet that escalatory ladder and, and the American public may say, we don't want this. We don't want it, especially if you think about a high-end war for a fight with China. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is, is then that would lead to a de-escalatory context. So this is known as escalate to de-escalate. But we de-escalate, but it's on China's terms. And so we're yep. negotiating on their terms, not our terms. That's the risk that we face. And that's what keeps, I'm certain, the President of the United States, the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, and others up at night. Now, flipping that one, right? So it's it's uh, one of those cases that you know how you start a war, but you don't know how to finish it, right? You don't, That's out of your control. And that's something that the Russians learned in this case, right? When oh, they, absolutely. When they, they thought that they were going to your point about no lack of ammunition, which is something they are suffering right now too. Uh, they thought that they were going to a three-day war and they find themselves a year and something later uh, still uh, embroidered in this uh, uh, war of attrition that they didn't expect to be fighting. So. Uh, the 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 one you you get to decide to open the Pandora's box. You don't get to close it to in 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 your terms. So in that in that context, Alex, and with the notes that you have both on 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 the field, but also also in the hill, which is the other, as you as you point out, there are, there are multiple battlefields on a, yeah. on a on a campaign, and Congress and budget is certainly one of them, right? So. Uh, what does running twice as fast means in the case of defense innovation? You mentioned uh, yeah. the issue of ammunition, right? So uh, I, I don't like the terms uh, high tech and low tech. I, I, I tend to tell, ask my, my students or when I give conferences to rephrase that into effective tech and ineffective tech. Right, there is a technology that is effective for the job, whatever that job is, and it can be a, a something with a lot of transistors, or it can be pen and paper. Right, so it all depends on what the mission is, what the value proposition is, the kind of intervention that you look for. So, in this context, what would it mean for America to talking about Steve Blank's issue on the lack of having no innovation strategy and our need to run twice as fast as the Red Queen problem would say. Where do you see that going uh, in this era that we need a doctrinal innovation, not only technological one put in place? Right. Innovation doctrine. So um, my 
before I just step onto the innovation doctrine, you brought up the point, Rodrigo, about the uh, the battlefield of Washington D.C. I mean, the budget <laughs> process. a whole yep. different type of bottom um, battlefield, and right? The Hill in particular, but <laughs> I will um, start by saying, and and how do we run as twice as fast? I actually think some good work has been done on that question um, by the Atlantic Council's. I forget the exact title, but it's essentially on um, future of innovation and warfare. Um, it's co-chaired by uh, former Secretary of Defense uh, Esper, West Point graduate, very proud, <laughs> and uh, and Deborah Lee James, former Secretary of the Air Force. Both also, both of them, Esper and um, Deborah James, uh, are both uh, alums of the House Armed Services Committee. So as an alum of the House Armed Services Committee, <laughs> I should also mention that. We're very proud of them as well. But, um, you know, I, and I think um, they've done some interesting thinking, and like the, high, the headline from their thinking is, if for defense innovation to flourish, it starts with the Hill. And because the Hill, of course, draws the box conceptually um, that the president, the secretary of defense, the secretary of state can operate it within. And sometimes, you know, I'm saying this in a conceptual way, sometimes the law can be drawn as a square, a rectangle, a trapezoid, a, uh, you know, some other weird figure. Um, you know, they create the box in which they operate. And right now, from an innovation perspective, the department operates in a fairly constrained box, um, and that and there's a number of different factors. It has a lot to do with the appropriations process, and one keep certain colors of money aligned to different programs, and a concern, a legitimate concern, I would say, around uh, so-called slush funds, right? Um, where Which you have, is totally reasonable. Where you have funds structured for um, a broad purpose. Um, but very hard to hold accountability for those funds because they can they get provide a lot of flexibility. I think now's the time, nonetheless, to and the and frankly, Atlanta Council makes this point as well, to accept that risk. Um, we did this also, you know, when I was on the Hill, I was working in the context of the so-called global war on terrorism or the terrorism fight, and we did provide them funds, large funds such as the counter CTPF, the Counterterrorism Cooperation uh, Fund, if I remember the terminology, the security enhancement fund. They were funds. They were large funds. The Afghanistan Security Forces funds, they were large funds that were used for a broad purpose. And yes, we were able to conduct oversight of it, but it's a lot of taxpayer dolly, dollars and there's a lot of risk in, in that. But it provided them agility and ability to um, get ahead of the Red Queen phenomena. So we need the Hill. And I would say the authorizing committees are the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee, I think are there. And I think are willing to provide more permissive authority to the executive branch agencies such as DOD um, to to be able to operate in a more agile way. I think their concern is that um, there's been a proliferation of innovation entities. Um, mm -hmm. We know about the Defense Innovation Unit, which I think has been doing great, and and I and I think they I like where their new their new positioning and role is in the bureaucracy, but. Um, every military service has their own innovation entity. Army Futures Command, uh, Naval X, AFWorks. Now, and then we can get into Special Operations Committee, SoftWorks, SpaceWorks. There's works all over the place. You have these proliferation <laughs> of innovation entities. And the problem is there's one, very little production because it's myopically focused on technology scouting. And two, to what extent are any of those technologies actually connected to um, gaps in the O plans that right, the right. joint staff has. And frankly, I don't, I don't know the extent to which innovation entities 
are actually thinking in that way, connecting it directly to operational needs to provide the president of the United States more decision space. And they've been proliferated. And so in many ways across the military services, you see a reinforcement of the service-based rivalries that you see on the conventional side with different platforms. The Army has its own innovation entity. The Marine Corps has its own innovation entity. You know what? The Army wants to buy its own version of the ground combat vehicle. The Marines want their own version. And so it's just reinforcing the service-based rivalries. I think we need to get away from that. We need to have more rationalization of these innovation entities. Secondly, connect them to actual gaps in the O plans. And then, and then third, provide more permissive authority and appropriations for them to be able to agilely uh, connect um, it, technologies to those gaps, those problems. And those gaps in the O plans are just problems. Right, as right. For defense. It, it's worse than that, right? So you, you kind of hit the, I think, the right diagnosis about the proliferation of so-called innovation institutions without necessarily the creation of an innovation doctrine, right? That cycles us back to what we were saying. Yeah. Um, when when Sputnik happened, right, and we freaked out because this little fellow yeah. traveler was doing beep beep about our heads, right? That's what Sputnik means. Uh, but it also was built on the platform of, of an ICBM, right? So it was a, every time that you could listen to Sputnik in your AM radio, uh, you were reminded now that now the Soviets had the capability to drop a nuclear bomb wherever they wanted, right? Mm -hmm. So that was a very free... We created a bunch of institutions as a response, NASA being one, but the other one is DARPA, right? And DARPA was created as a response uh, uh, to a question that was asked by the Hill, which is how can we prevent strategic surprise? Yeah. And the answer is you can. The only thing is that you can do is to generate strategic surprise faster so mm -hmm. the other uh, entity your adversary is spinning on side inside of your decision making cycle your OODA loop instead right, of you spinning idea correct so it goes right. back to the velocity issue exactly right. jim that's what right. i wanted to say so <laughs> uh, and darpa is a very technology oriented agency they build stuff right very radical stuff amazing stuff but very uh, what they are not, it's an innovation shop, right? They actually don't build business models. They don't create. So so is, is this a moment in which we need to build a DARPA for innovation, right? Is this something we have to not concentrate in a single agency, but instead reproduce as a culture throughout the department? Culture is very hard, right? So we know that culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? So it's very difficult <laughs> to build culture. So where, where do you see this? this uh, uh, entry point, Alex, to this, to your idea of velocity, right? How can we spin faster than our adversary so we can go beyond just staying in the same place? And yeah. Alex, before you answer, I think it's one thing that's really interesting here is these problems are not just the United States. If we look across our allied base, <laughs> these are the exact same things that are happening. If we look at our acquisition cultures, for example, between us and our Five Eyes partners, and this, it's those problems exist everywhere. And it's interesting to me, having now existed in this world now for a few years, and I know you've been in there for much of your career, is that this is not like an unknown problem, right? Like you wouldn't think like these silos of these technology organizations or going back to the example that you made, Alex, about every organization or every every branch is buying its own things and they don't talk to each other. I worked on PMD SIGs for a year for the Army. Well, PMD SIGs Air Force didn't talk to PMD SIGs Army and didn't talk to Marine Corps and everyone's developing their own things. And it's like, isn't the idea to share intelligence data in this in this case? And it's it's very interesting to me that it, I feel like it's just been the reflection on on our 
our defense culture, acquisition culture, innovation culture in, in the government for so many years. Yeah. And I don't know if now is going to be the changing point, but it, it feels like there is, Rodrigo, to your point, that's like this inflection point that at what point are we going to say like enough? I just, it, it is, are we getting to that point? And that's, I, you know, to kind of add on the Rodrigo's, you know, points there. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, let me start with the Sputnik point, because I think it's actually very apt here. Um, uh, I don't know if we've had our Sputnik moment. So I do think there's folks who have um, accepted, understood um, the the challenge um, from you know, the so-called great power competition challenge, our strategic competition challenge, but particularly from China, I think China is a different actor. So they're the, and what's interesting too, is the American public to some extent, and this goes back to my point about Congress, I think is more tuned in with, um, there's a direct connection here. There's a unique situation where there is, there is some connective tissue between China and uh, folks who are living their everyday lives within the U.S. economy, and 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 the, and politicians have started making those connections for folks too, and people recognize it just in their own life. So it's actually interesting that there is a just like with Russia, Russia having nuclear tipped ICBMs, um, you know, like that was something that was you know recognized by the American public. But to your point again, Rodrigo, you know, is can people listen to today's version of the beep beep beep? on AM radio that reminds them <laughs> that Russia is there. And, you know, in, in, in modern context that I think it's more, the more acute pacing challenge is that, is that China is there. Absolutely. I don't think, I don't think, I don't think that moment has happened. I think China is very conscious of making sure that moment doesn't happen uh, because the, because they understand, you know, like if past this prologue, if you look at world war two, to other points in time, the United States has rose to the occasion um, when we have our spot, so-called Sputnik moment. And so I think they're very conscious not to trip over that kind of threshold. And um, and so I, I think my one of my concerns is like, um, again, back to your point, Jim, this is a recognized problem. It's a recognized problem by people who do it. But it's, I think in many ways, we haven't had that uh, crystallized moment of Sputnik. And I and and just briefly, if I could just add, like um, that um, on your question of like getting ahead of the Red Queen problem, part of it is everything I just mentioned about you know the things that Congress needs to change, and I do think the Atlantic Council's Commission on Innovation has put up teed up some really good recommendations. But innovation doctrine, um, the problem, the concept of innovation doctrine has everything to do with um, common language, common understanding of problems. Um, you know, common ways uh, in which organizations operate and understand how, are educated on. This is Pete Newell talks a lot about this. Educated on um, how to assess risk, which is an entrepreneurial skill set, yep, etc. All these kind of things. Um, I think yes, on the executive branch side, having some doctrinal way, a common way to do that um, would be very valuable because everything I just listed, there is not a common way to do all those things. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that would be another, I think it's on both sides of the battlefield, so to speak, the Hill and the executive branch, both have things they need to do. And a lot of it has to do with agility and then creating a common uh, operating picture and thereby a common culture. But I do fear that there's not, there's not a crystallized moment to bring together both, um, or, you know, um, 
as John Kingdom talks about that policy window context, you know, where there's this policy window for close, but I don't know if we're fully there, the, where the streams have come together. So some of the of the doctrinal material that we have from, I, I know from China, I don't know from, from Russia, but I'm sure that's the case too, make a point exactly what you said about the fragmented policymaking process in America. And in, in, in no simple terms, in, in, no, in no complicated terms, uh, to try to avoid, to try to avoid uh, awakening the sleeping giant. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they, they know that the United States has a very strong nativist uh, uh, proclivity that historically it's a nation that uh, right. tends to not to want, contrary to popular belief, not to want to have a, a imperial uh, expansionist desires. Right. And, and in fact, a lot of the American public, what it wants is to be left alone, right? to, yeah. to enjoy the blessings of a nation protected by two, yeah. by two vast oceans. Right. And yeah. let the rest of the, con the, wor the world uh, uh, go up in flames if it needs to right and and therefore not only as you say uh, 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 accidentally we haven't had that Sputnik moment but they make a point of acting now in a way that it doesn't become a target of public attention by the American public they don't give us that sensation of a common enemy that we had in Pearl Harbor that we had in 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 Sputnik right so how to build and then a common mission towards <laughs> something together Right. in the innovation space without that, uh, yeah. that uh, uh, attractor. Well, thank you for that, Rodrigo. I appreciate that. I totally <laughs> agree with you. We, we have a common mission, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll get on to that in a second. But you know, just a really quick on the Sputnik idea um, one more time is I think there are some who had assumed maybe, going all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, that Ukraine was the Sputnik moment, you know, um, that, you know, that so-called powers, strategic powers, I don't want to give Russia the credit of a great power, but, you know, power that um, can, you know, realize its ends through force, might makes right, that kind of concept of international security. I think the answer, the jury is out. On, I don't think it, I don't think Ukraine is a crystallizing Sputnik moment, unfortunately. And I will say, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, just if you look at even just public sentiment right now, you're not seeing that same type of support for all of this. Right. I mean, right. There, that's a if, if we look at those two situations, just one for one, yeah. you know, you're seeing that what 45 percent of the American public has said that they don't want to continue funding the war. And you have to wonder, as that was Russia's once they realized they couldn't win this fight in three days, they're just waiting for attrition to your point earlier, Alex. Yeah. Exactly. And, um, you know, and so we can talk, we can unpack that, but, um, but to your question, like if we're correct here in this conversation saying the Sputnik moment has not occurred, the awakening of the giant, the sleeping giant has not occurred. Um, so how do you do it? And yes, um, that is one of, I mean, and to some extent that is, I would say directly, but certainly part and parcel to our common mission project mission. Um, we are, um, we want to do two things. One is um, we want to rec everybody to recognize that we do have a common purpose and, dare I say, a common mission. But the other purpose, the other point is that we want to do it through a grassroots movement. Right. And that is the that is what we're doing. We're going out and we're touching professors, I would say, students and other entrepreneurs who may have never had any connection to the Department of Defense. We also do with DHS, Department of Homeland Security with Hacking for Homeland Security, Department of State with Diplomacy, they have never even had any connection to it. And um, they're recognizing not only do they have interesting problems, and these are interesting, high quality people who serve in the government, but they understand the need. And I do think the awakening is happening organically through our grassroots movement. 
through our hacking for programs. And, you know, that's how, you, I mean, that's how, uh, that's how it's going to be done in absence of the so-called the Sputnik, Sputnik moment. And what's good news is not only are we awakening folks, but we are giving them a set of tools to help it get after and beyond the red queen problem at the same time. And yeah. And so, you know, like, um, so I'm hopeful. I continue to be hopeful uh, in this, but I, but I do have concerns. I, I do. I am concerned that that awakening has not occurred fully yet within our society. And 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 to Jim, your point, Western society more broadly, even mm-hmm. to some extent. Yeah, I totally um, agree. Ukraine war is very real for a lot of European nations, but at the same time, um, you, we haven't seen like the full, you know, transition. You know, so there's been movement, but not full transition. And then certainly the China aspect, people see it through this you know, some of the their trade policies and, the, and that's a good starting point. But I think there's an open question. And, you know, um, just my opinion on this, obviously, um, my opinion is I think there's an open question that people would have an incorrect assumption. But I would also note that how does Taiwan relate to me? You know, how does that all how does that relate? Just like the question of how does Ukraine relate to me? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and it does relate to us, and we could have that longer conversation. But yeah, I don't think that awakening is there. So we're not through our program, have you know, trying to you know, say um, explain how Taiwan relates to people's lives. But what we're trying to do is just getting people more connected to these big problems. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's a, and that's the one that's interesting is that when you start framing against so many of the things we talk about, even our hacking for impact programs, is that having energy security is national security. Mm-hmm. All of these things relate back. And I think there's been this apprehension, especially since I think the public opinion on the war in Iraq and Afghanistan kind of turned a little bit um, where people are thinking that they don't want to have anything to do with it. And the reality is, is a lot of the things that we do, whether it's our education systems, whether it's our weapons manufacturing, our thought leaders, this is all national security. And I think that if we were, that's to my point is like when you, there's that awakening moment is also the reflection of that. What I do means that we have a stable nation, which is national security. We've educated our public, we create critical thinkers. And I, and I I still think to your point, Alex, there's so many of these, what people think are disparate elements of like the, that, that the sleeping giant that haven't been connected yet. Uh, You know, there are probably people who are actively dissuading it in, in the public sphere as well. That's, probably conversation for a different day but I, I i agree with you and i think it's like especially these hacking four programs as, as students start to figure out well me doing this even though i'm not putting a uh, you know a flak jacket on it's still national security whether that's energy independence making sure that our kelp forests are healthy or you know making sure that we have you know counter drone mitigation strategies for embassies it's it's all national security and yeah I, I, maybe there's a hesitancy by just you know a lot of people out there thinking that they don't that they that there's this militarization but it's not militarization national security i don't think is a is tied at the hip to militarization there can be inherently different depending on how you frame it and that's one of the I think that's been eye openings for the students that I've had, and I'm sure you as well, Alex and Rodrigo, is that yeah. they start seeing themselves in these problems and then the solutions because yes. it has to do with them. It's not framing it at this big, you know, colossus that doesn't exist to them. Like you were mentioning, oh, Ukraine's far away. It's not me. Well, it is. And the the quicker we can all get to that point, the better we all are, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I do, uh, I want to just double tap on your point that um, these broader problems are national security. Um, 
you know, but I, you know, to your, I, I'm agreeing with you and I would just even go further. I mean, it's, um, I think it's a, you know, it is a, the Uber framing is it, it's not only is it national security, it's, you know, um, how do we want the world to be structured? And is, it isn't more in the, additionally in the frame, I should say of, you know, an authoritarian world versus, um, a, you know, democracies, democratic republics. Um, and, um, you know, um, other, many have said this, so I'm just essentially parroting what others have said, but, um, it is a choice, you know, and, um, all these, all these things are a choice. And so absolutely could not, that I can't agree more with you in it. And then I would, to, I agree with you saying go further. It is a choice. We yeah. do have a choice, whether it's being presented to us that, that way or not, because I think I've even had people say, well, what has happened, you know, um, you know, in Germany or the uh, in Serbia, World War One, World War Two, it won't happen in the United States. And like, you want to bet? Mm-hmm. There is a reality that choices can be made. To, and it just you might not be aware of all the ramifications around it, but it is an active choice. And to succumb to or capitulate to the Red Queen problem, even if one doesn't think of it along those terms, but just that that challenge um, is a choice. And so what we're trying to do is provide folks the tools to overcome the Red Queen problem in their own environment, meaning whether it's in the local context, the state context, the federal context, the international security environment context, you know, there are tools and ways to overcome it. And um, again, we're, we're part of that uh, grassroots mission to do that. I think that one thing that I leave a little, almost as conclusion for this conversation is that um, to put it in the context of the stuff that we teach in our classrooms is that uh, product mission fits, product mission fits sometimes doesn't reveal to itself. It did in the case of Sputnik, right? It it came and stared you in the face, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes you have to go and look for it and Lean helps us do that. So having a cadre of people who know how to look for product mission fit in the defense space, which is what we've been talking today, um, Mm -hmm. it's important. It's important to think about it beyond just the, the idea of technological development. Yeah which is how we've been approaching it, because there's more than that. As you were saying, there's a doctrine. I, there's a good example that I love in the case of counter-drone technology. We started talking about Ukraine drones, so let's let's go back to it. And your counter-drone technology might be another drone with a net, but it also might be an eagle trying to grab it, right? Or it might be, you don't know what it's going to be. It might not be a gizmo, right? It might be a capability that you build within an organization, right? And in that, yeah. it might be training animals in different ways. So, so what you want to be doing is uh, making sure that you have, as you mentioned, Alex, the grassroots movement. So from the top to the bottom, people are in that build, learn, build, measure, learn mode. People are open to the idea that we need to be exploring different ways of doing things because running in place, if we do everything that we've been doing up to this point the same way, we'll be basically just running in place. So how do we move beyond that? And just one line, I couldn't agree more and really interesting points you're making there, Rodrigo. And I I would just add that, um, you know, so back to the beginning too, to what I posed the question of to what extent does Ukraine represent the future of warfare? I don't know. I mean, I think that's still an open question, but it'd be hubris to say otherwise, (laughs) but just to, yeah, but to bring, but to bring a full circle, what we do know is that um, a grassroots movement with folks who have the tools to do it up and down, as we're seeing in Ukraine, is very powerful. And, and so we do know that. Absolutely. We don't know if it's the future of fully reflects the future of warfare. 
we've been 100% wrong in predicting the next war with Bob Gates, but we do know arming conceptually, arming people with that skill set and tools has uh, yielded really excellent outcomes in that fight. And I think it's something we need to do in sight. And I love that thought about how um, having the lean launchpad, lean startup methodology, it, it allows you to discover it and shine a light on what the product market fit might be and all that. So yeah, um, love it. Well, I think that's a great way of closing off the off the episode for the, for this one. Alex could not thank you more for participating in this with Rodrigo and I. It's it's a, you know, I I'm I'm really fortunate that when I, I met Alex at my my educators uh, course at Texas A and M now many years ago, and uh, the friendship and and everything there has been something I've really I've really cherished over the years and being able to learn from Alex. So I hope everybody who's listening to this is really taking away this opportunity that we all are part of the solution. Or, and I know this is kind of cliche, but we can also all be part of the problem as well. So there's an opportunity for all of us to look at, you know, what's going on around us and, you know, being adaptive and responsive and, and coming up with with new ways, not just with technology. You can't throw technology at every problem and, and using our own skills and the things that we're good at to identify what the real critical problems are and then putting something in place. So Alex, thank you again, Rodrigo. Could not do this without you. So thank you. Thank you for being there uh, with me as a, as a co-host. And for everyone listening, if you haven't already subscribed, what are you waiting for? Um, make sure you check out the Commission uh, social that you can find in the description of this episode. And we will be looking forward to seeing you on the next one. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you again to the Commission Project for the support of this podcast. The Common Mission Project has demonstrated that students can tackle some of the toughest government problems and in doing so, create vibrant, diverse ecosystems where government, academia, and industry build partnerships around problems, prototypes, and solutions to urgent challenges facing our nation. To find out more about the Common Mission Project, please visit commonmission.us, which is linked in the description of this episode, as well as finding out options on how you can get more involved with our wonderful nonprofit organization, including opportunities to donate. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you on the next one.